Chapter Nineteen of Mr. Gilfil's Love Story from Scenes of Clerical Life by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bruce Peary. Chapter Nineteen. The sad, slow week was gone by at last. At the coroner's inquest, a verdict of sudden death had been pronounced. Doctor Hart, acquainted with Captain Wybrow's previous state of health had given his opinion that death had been imminent from long-established disease of the heart, though it had probably been accelerated by some unusual emotion. Miss Asher was the only person who positively knew the motive that had led Captain Wybrow to the rookery, but she had not mentioned Caterina's name, and all painful details or inquiries were studiously kept from her. Mr. Gilfil and Sir Christopher, however, knew enough to conjecture that the fatal agitation was due to an appointed meeting with Caterina. All search and inquiry after her had been fruitless, and were the more likely to be so because they were carried on under the prepossession that she had committed suicide. No one noticed the absence of the trifles she had taken from her desk. No one knew of the likeness or that she had hoarded her seven-shilling pieces, and it was not remarkable that she should have happened to be wearing the pearl earrings. She had left the house, they thought, taking nothing with her. It seemed impossible she could have gone far, and she must have been in a state of mental excitement that made it too probable she had only gone to seek relief in death. The same places within three or four miles of the manor were searched again and again. Every pond, every ditch in the neighborhood was examined. Sometimes Maynard thought that death might have come on unsought from cold and exhaustion, and not a day passed but he wandered through the neighboring woods, turning up the heaps of dead leaves, as if it were possible her dear body could be hidden there. Then another horrible thought recurred, and before each night came he had been again through all the uninhabited rooms of the house to satisfy himself once more that she was not hidden behind some cabinet or door or curtain, that he should not find her there with madness in her eyes, looking and looking and yet not seeing him. But at last those five long days and nights were at an end, the funeral was over, and the carriages were returning through the park. When they had set out a heavy rain was falling, but now the clouds were breaking up, and a gleam of sunshine was sparkling among the dripping boughs under which they were passing. This gleam fell upon a man on horseback who was jogging slowly along, and whom Mr. Gilfil recognized, in spite of diminished rotundity, as Daniel Knott, the coachman who had married the rosy-cheeked Dorcas ten years before. Every new incident suggested the same thought to Mr. Gilfil, and his eye no sooner fell on Knott then he said to himself, Can he be come to tell us anything about Caterina? Then he remembered that Caterina had been very fond of Dorcas, and that she always had some present ready to send her when not paid an occasional visit to the manor. Could Tina have gone to Dorcas? But his heart sank again as he thought, very likely Nod had only come because he had heard of Captain Wybrow's death, and wanted to know how his old master had borne the blow. As soon as the carriage reached the house, he went up to his study and walked about nervously, longing but afraid to go down and speak to Nott, lest his faint hope should be dissipated. 
any one looking at that face usually so full of calm good-will would have seen that the last week's suffering had left deep traces by day he had been riding or wandering incessantly either searching for Caterina himself or directing inquiries to be made by others by night he had not known sleep only intermittent dozing in which he seemed to be finding Caterina dead and woke up with a start from this unreal agony to the real anguish of believing that he should see her no more the clear grey eyes looked sunken and restless the full careless lips had a strange tension about them and the brow formerly so smooth and open was contracted as if with pain he had not lost the object of a few months passion he had lost the being who was bound up with his power of loving as the brook we played by or the flowers we gathered in childhood are bound up with our sense of beauty love meant nothing for him but to love Caterina. for years the thought of her had been present in everything like the air and the light and now she was gone it seemed as if all pleasure had lost its vehicle the sky the earth the daily ride the daily talk might be there but the loveliness and the joy that were in them had gone forever presently as he still paced backwards and forwards he heard steps along the corridor and there was a knock at his door his voice trembled as he said come in and the rush of renewed hope was hardly distinguishable from pain when he saw warren enter with daniel knott behind him not his come sir with news of miss sarti i thought it best to bring him to you first mr gilfil could not help going up to the old coachman and wringing his hand but he was unable to speak and only motioned him to take a chair while warren left the room he hung upon daniel's moon face and listened to his small piping voice with the same solemn yearning expectation with which he would have given ear to the most awful messenger from the land of shades it were dorcas sir would have me come but we knowed nothing o what's happened at the manor she's frightened out on her wits about miss sarti and she would have me saddle blackbird this mornin and leave the plowin and come and let sir christopher and my lady know perhaps you've heard sir we don't keep the cross keys at sloppeter now a uncle o mine died three years ago and left me a legacy he was bailiff to squire ramble as had them their big farms on his hands and so we took a little farm of forty acres of thereabouts because dorcas didn't like the public when she got moithered with children as pretty a place as ever you see sir with water at the back convenient for the cattle for god's sake said maynard tell me what it is about miss sarti don't stay to tell me anything else now well sir said not rather frightened by the parson's vehemence she come to our house of the carrier's cart o wednesday when it was welly nine o'clock at night and dorcas run out for she heard the cart stop and miss sarti throwed her arms round dorcas's neck and says tek me in dorcas tek me in and went off into a swoon like and dorcas calls out to me dan'l she calls and i run out and carried the young miss in and she come round arter a bit and opened her eyes and dorcas got her to drink a spoonful o rum and water we've got some capital rum as we brought from the cross keys and dorcas won't let nobody drink it she says she keeps it for sickness but for my part i think it's a pity to drink good rum when your mouth's out o taste you may just as well have doctor's stuff however dorcas got her to bed and there she's lay ever sin 
stupid-like, and never speaks, and only takes little bits and sups when Dorcas coaxes her. And we begun to be frightened, and couldn't think what had made her come away from the manor, and Dorcas was afeard there was summat wrong. So this morning she could hold no longer, and would have no nay, but I must come and see. And so I've rode twenty mile upon Blackbird, as thinks all the while he's a ploughin', and turns sharp round every thirty yards as if he was at the end of a furrow. I've had a sore time with him, I can tell you, sir. God bless you not for coming, said Mr. Gilfil, wringing the old coachman's hand again. Now go down and have something, and rest yourself. You will stay here to-night, and by and by I shall come to you to learn the nearest way to your house. I shall get ready to ride there immediately when I have spoken to Sir Christopher. In an hour from that time Mr. Gilfil was galloping on a stout mare towards the little muddy village of Callum, five miles beyond Sloppeter. Once more he saw some gladness in the afternoon sunlight. Once more it was a pleasure to see the hedgerow trees flying past him, and to be conscious of a good seat while his black kitty bounded beneath him, and the air whistled to the rhythm of her pace. Caterina was not dead. He had found her. His love and tenderness and long-suffering seemed so strong they must recall her to life and happiness. After that week of despair, the rebound was so violent that it carried his hopes at once as far as the utmost mark they had ever reached. Caterina would come to love him at last. She would be his. They had been carried through all that dark and weary way that she might know the depth of his love. How he would cherish her, his little bird with the timid bright eye, and the sweet throat that trembled with love and music. She would nestle against him, and the poor little breast which had been so ruffled and bruised should be safe for evermore. In the love of a brave and faithful man there is always a strain of maternal tenderness. He gives out again those beams of protecting fondness which were shed on him as he lay on his mother's knee. It was twilight as he entered to the village of Callum, and, asking a homeward-bound labourer the way to Daniel Knott's, learned that it was by the church, which showed its stumpy ivy-clad spire on a slight elevation of ground, a useful addition to the means of identifying that desirable homestead afforded by Daniel's description, the prettiest place ever you see. Though a small cow-yard full of excellent manure, and leading right up to the door, without any frivolous interruption from garden or railing, might perhaps have been enough to make that description unmistakably specific. Mr. Gilfil had no sooner reached the gate leading into the cow-yard than he was descried by a flaxen-haired lad of nine, prematurely invested with the toga virilis, or smock-frock, who ran forward to let in the unusual visitor. In a moment Dorcas was at the door, the roses on her cheeks apparently all the redder for the three pair of cheeks which formed a group round her, and for the very fat baby who stared in her arms and sucked a long crust with calm relish. "'Is it Mr. Gilfil, sir?' said Dorcas, curtsying low as he made his way through the damp straw after tying up his horse. "'Yes, Dorcas, I've grown out of your knowledge. How is Miss Sarty?' "'Just for all the world the same, sir, as I suppose Dannels told you, for I reckon you've come from the manor, though you're come uncommon quick, to be sure.' 
Yes, he got to the manor about one o'clock, and I set off as soon as I could. She's not worse, is she? No change, sir, for better or worse. Will you please to walk in, sir? She lies there taking no notice o' nothin', no more nor a baby as is only a week old, and looks at me as blank as if she didn't know me. Oh, what can it be, Mr. Gothel? How comes she to leave the manor? How's his honour and my lady? In great trouble, Dorcas. Captain Wybrow, Sir Christopher's nephew, you know, has died suddenly. Miss Sarty found him lying dead, and I think the shock has affected her mind. Eh, dear, that fine young gentleman as was to be the heir, as Dan'l told me about. I remember seeing him when he was a little and visiting at the manor. Well a day, what a grief to his honour and my lady. But that poor Miss Tina, and she found him a lion dead. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Dorcas had led the way into the best kitchen, as charming a room as best kitchens used to be in farmhouses which had no parlours. The fire reflected in a bright row of pewter plates and dishes, the sand-scoured deal tables so clean you longed to stroke them, the salt coffer in one chimney-corner, and a three-cornered chair in the other, the walls behind handsomely tapestried with flitches of bacon, and the ceiling ornamented with pendant hams. "'Sit ye down, sir, do,' said Dorcas, moving the three-cornered chair, "'and let me get you something after your long journey. Here, Becky, come and take the baby.' Becky, a red-armed damsel, emerged from the adjoining back kitchen, and possessed herself of baby, whose feelings or fat made him conveniently apathetic under the transference. "'What'll you please to take, sir, as I can give you? I'll get you a rash or a bacon in no time, and I've got some tea, or belike you take a glass of rum and water. I know we've got nothing as you're used to eat and drink, but such as I have, sir, I shall be proud to give you.' "'Thank you, Dorcas. I can't eat or drink anything. I'm not hungry or tired. Let us talk about Tina. Has she spoken at all?' never since the fust words dear dorcas says she tek me in and then went off into a faint and not a word has she spoken since i get her to eat little bits and sups o things but she teks no notice o nothin i've took up bessie wi me now and then here dorcas lifted to her lap a curly-headed little girl of three who was twisting a corner of her mother's apron and opening round eyes at the gentleman Folks'll take notice of children sometimes when they won't a nothin else, and we gathered the autumn crocuses out of the orchard, and Bessie carried em up in her hand and put em on the bed. I knowed how fond Miss Tina was of flowers and them things when she was a little un, but she looked at Bessie and the flowers just the same as if she didn't see em. It cuts me to the heart to look at them eyes o hers. I think they're bigger nor ever, and they look like my poor babies as died when it got so thin. Oh, dear, it's little hands you could see through em. But I've great hopes if she was to see you, sir, as come from the manor, it might bring back her mind like. Maynard had that hope, too, but he felt cold mists of fear gathering round him after the few bright warm hours of joyful confidence which had passed since he first heard that Caterina was alive. The thought would urge itself upon him that her mind and body might never recover the strain that had been put upon them, that her delicate thread of life had already nearly spun itself out. 
go now dorcas and see how she is but don't say anything about my being here perhaps it would be better for me to wait till daylight before i see her and yet it would be very hard to pass another night in this way dorcas set down little bessie and went away the three other children including young daniel in his smock-frock were standing opposite to mr gilfil watching him still more shyly now they were without their mother's countenance he drew little bessie towards him and set her on his knee she shook her yellow curls out of her eyes and looked up at him as she said zu tum to tease a yady zu make her peek what's to do to her tis her do you like to be kissed bessie dat said bessie immediately ducking down her head very low in resistance to the expected rejoinder we've got two pups said young daniel emboldened by observing the gentleman's amenities towards bessie shall i show em yer one's got white spots yes let me see them daniel ran out and presently reappeared with two blind puppies eagerly followed by the mother affectionate though mongrel and an exciting scene was beginning when dorcas returned and said there's never any difference in her hardly i think you needn't wait sir she lies very still as she always does i've put two candle in the room so as she may see you well you'll please to excuse the room sir and the cap as she has on it's one of mine mr gilfil nodded silently and rose to follow her upstairs they turned in at the first door their footsteps making little noise on the plaster floor the red checkered linen curtains were drawn at the head of the bed and dorcas had placed the candles on this side of the room so that the light might not fall oppressively on katerina's eyes when she had opened the door dorcas whispered i'd better leave you sir i think mr gilfil motioned assent and advanced beyond the curtain katerina lay with her eyes turned the other way and seemed unconscious that any one had entered her eyes as dorcas had said looked larger than ever perhaps because her face was thinner and paler and her hair quite gathered away under one of dorcas's thick caps the small hands too that lay listlessly on the outside of the bedclothes were thinner than ever she looked younger than she really was and any one seeing the tiny face and hands for the first time might have thought they belonged to a little girl of twelve who was being taken away from coming instead of past sorrow when mr gilfil advanced and stood opposite to her the light fell full upon his face a slight startled expression came over katerina's eyes she looked at him earnestly for a few moments then lifted up her hand as if to beckon him to stoop down towards her and whispered maynard he seated himself on the bed and stooped down towards her she whispered again maynard did you see the dagger he followed his first impulse in answering her and it was a wise one yes he whispered i found it in your pocket and put it back again in the cabinet he took her hand in his and held it gently awaiting what she would say next his heart swelled so with thankfulness that she had recognized him he could hardly repress a sob gradually her eyes became softer and less intense in their gaze the tears were slowly gathering and presently some large hot drops rolled down her cheek 
then the floodgates were opened and the heart-easing stream gushed forth deep sobs came and for nearly an hour she lay without speaking while the heavy icy pressure that withheld her misery from utterance was thus melting away how precious these tears were to maynard who day after day had been shuddering at the continually recurring image of tina with the dry scorching stare of insanity by degrees the sobs subsided she began to breathe calmly and lay quiet with her eyes shut patiently maynard sat not heeding the flight of the hours not heeding the old clock that ticked loudly on the landing but when it was nearly ten dorcas impatiently anxious to know the result of mr gilfil's appearance could not help stepping in on tiptoe without moving he whispered in her ear to supply him with candles see that the cowboy had shaken down his mare and go to bed he would watch with katerina a great change had come over her before long tina's lips began to move maynard she whispered again he leaned towards her and she went on you know how wicked i am then you know what i meant to do with the dagger did you mean to kill yourself tina she shook her head slowly and then was silent for a long while at last looking at him with solemn eyes she whispered to kill him tina my loved one you would never have done it god saw your whole heart he knows you would never harm a living thing he watches over his children and will not let them do things they would pray with their whole hearts not to do it was the angry thought of a moment and he forgives you she sank into silence again till it was nearly midnight the weary enfeebled spirit seemed to be making its slow way with difficulty through the windings of thought and when she began to whisper again it was in reply to maynard's words but i had had such wicked feelings for a long while i was so angry and i hated miss astor so and i didn't care what came to anybody because i was so miserable myself i was full of bad passions no one else was ever so wicked yes tina many are just as wicked i often have very wicked feelings and am tempted to do wrong things but then my body is stronger than yours and i can hide my feelings and resist them better they do not master me so you have seen the little birds when they are very young and just begin to fly how all their feathers are ruffled when they are frightened or angry they have no power over themselves left and might fall into a pit from mere fright you were like one of those little birds your sorrow and suffering had taken such hold of you you hardly knew what you did he would not speak long lest he should tire her and oppress her with too many thoughts long pauses seemed needful for her before she could concentrate her feelings in short words but when i meant to do it was the next thing she whispered it was as bad as if i had done it no my tina answered maynard slowly waiting a little between each sentence we mean to do wicked things that we never could do just as we mean to do good or clever things that we never could do 
our thoughts are often worse than we are just as they are often better than we are and god sees us as we are altogether not in separate feelings or actions as our fellow-men see us we are always doing each other injustice and thinking better or worse of each other than we deserve because we only hear and see separate words and actions we don't see each other's whole nature but god sees that you could not have committed that crime katerina shook her head slowly and was silent after a while i don't know she said i seemed to see him coming towards me just as he would really have looked and i meant i meant to do it but when you saw him tell me how it was tina i saw him lying on the ground and thought he was ill i don't know how it was then i forgot everything i knelt down and spoke to him and and he took no notice of me and his eyes were fixed and i began to think he was dead and you have never felt angry since oh no no it is i who have been more wicked than anyone it is i who have been wrong all through no tina the fault has not all been yours he was wrong he gave you provocation and wrong makes wrong when people use us ill we can hardly help having ill feeling towards them but that second wrong is more excusable i am more sinful than you tina i have often had very bad feelings towards captain wybrow and if he had provoked me as he did you i should perhaps have done something more wicked oh it was not so wrong in him he didn't know how he hurt me how was it likely he could love me as i loved him and how could he marry a poor little thing like me maynard made no reply to this and there was again silence till tina said then i was so deceitful they didn't know how wicked i was padroncello didn't know his good little monkey he used to call me and if he had known oh how naughty he would have thought me my tina we have all our secret sins and if we knew ourselves we should not judge each other harshly sir christopher himself has felt since this trouble came upon him that he has been too severe and obstinate in this way in these broken confessions and answering words of comfort the hours wore on from the deep black night to the chill early twilight and from early twilight to the first yellow streak of morning parting the purple cloud mr gilfil felt as if in the long hours of that night the bond that united his love for ever and alone to katerina had acquired fresh strength and sanctity it is so with the human relations that rest on the deep emotional sympathy of affection every new day and night of joy or sorrow is a new ground a new consecration for the love that is nourished by memories as well as hopes the love to which perpetual repetition is not a weariness but a want and to which a separated joy is the beginning of pain the cocks began to crow the gate swung there was a tramp of footsteps in the yard and mr gilfil heard dorcas stirring these sounds seemed to affect katerina for she looked anxiously at him and said maynard are you going away no i shall stay here at callum until you are better and then you will go away too 
never to the manor again oh no i shall live poorly and get my own bread well dearest you shall do what you would like best but i wish you could go to sleep now try to rest quietly and by and by you will perhaps sit up a little god has kept you in life in spite of all this sorrow it will be sinful not to try and make the best of his gift dear tina you will try and little bessie brought you some crocuses once you didn't notice the poor little thing but you will notice her when she comes again will you not i will try whispered tina humbly and then closed her eyes by the time the sun was above the horizon scattering the clouds and shining with pleasant morning warmth through the little leaded window caterina was asleep maynard gently loosed the tiny hand cheered dorcas with the good news and made his way to the village inn with a thankful heart that tina had been so far herself again evidently the sight of him had blended naturally with the memories in which her mind was absorbed and she had been led on to an unburthening of herself that might be the beginning of a complete restoration but her body was so enfeebled her soul so bruised that the utmost tenderness and care would be necessary the next thing to be done was to send tidings to sir christopher and lady cheverel then to write and summon his sister under whose care he had determined to place caterina the manor even if she had been wishing to return thither would he knew be the most undesirable home for her at present every scene every object there was associated with still unallayed anguish if she were domesticated for a time with his mild gentle sister who had a peaceful home and a prattling little boy tina might attach herself anew to life and recover partly at least the shock that had been given to her constitution when he had written his letters and taken a hasty breakfast he was soon in his saddle again on his way to Sloppeter, where he would post them and seek out a medical man to whom he might confide the moral causes of Caterina's enfeebled condition. End of chapter 19 of Mr. Gilfil's Love Story